0: Hi, I'm Gordon. And I'm Fiona. We're from Gate Church International in Dundee, Scotland, and we'd like to welcome you to this week's podcast. Our goal here is growing people to bring Christ into our communities and to see you get connected with God, his people, and his purpose. We hope this message inspires you in your faith journey. Thank you. What are we going to do this morning or this afternoon? Well, I've got four goals. I want us to understand a little more of what the gospel actually is, what the good news of Jesus is. I want us to understand ourselves a little better. I want us to understand other people a little better. And I want us to understand God's heart of compassion a little better. And there's two or three bonus points thrown in as well as we go. Right. What's the most famous verse in the New Testament? John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? Well done. Who knows what John 3.17-21 say? Come on, put your hand up if you do know. Remember, God is watching you, so no lying. There could be thunderbolts coming down very quickly if... Right, who knows? Any of you? Might be some of you. Well, we're about to make good this uh, ignorance which consumes the whole church. So let's go to John 3 16, first of all. One of the worst that we did know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Virtually every Christian knows that verse. Many non-Christians are well, at least aware of it as well. And it's very nice, isn't it? It's very nice. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. I'm going to warn you, in two verses' time, things are going to turn nasty. So steal yourself it. It's going to turn nasty in two verses' time. Niceness is going to go out the window. But before we just leave this verse aside, just set one of the bonus points. Sometimes people have a picture that was happening is that a kind and loving Jesus was persuading a reluctant and angry God to forgive us and not send us to hell. The worst case of that are some people who talk about the cross being cosmic child abuse. That is an utter, complete misunderstanding of what was happening. Look what it says there. For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. The cross was a joint enterprise between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They were in complete agreement. It was a gracious act of love towards us. But it was also a great act of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like, you know, sometimes in adventure films, you'll have the general picture of the story will be, you'll have one group of people trying to rescue another group of people. And in the course of time to do that, one of the people, uh, one of the persons in the rescue group, will have to put their life in great danger. So there's only one person maybe who's having to take the real risk, but all of the party is united in the enterprise, in what they're doing. That's what was happening on the cross. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete agreement. An act of love between them. Let's go to the next verse. And things stay nice. This is what it says in 317. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. That's still nice. I'm not going to condemn the world. What does it mean? Let me tell you what people often seem to think it means. Or particularly in fact, especially people who aren't Christians. What it means that God didn't send Jesus into the world to tell the world that it was wrong, that we're sinners. I mean, you know, you, you can get, if you tell someone that what they're doing is wrong, you can almost guarantee, Jesus said, do not judge. If you hear someone say, Jesus said, do not judge, then there's, you can be 99% certain that the next thing they're going to say is complete nonsense. I hope I'm going to be part of the one percent. People think that it means that Jesus came to affirm us to say, "You okay? you okay." And that the cross was just God demonstrating His love towards us. That's not what it means. We're going to come back to these two verses in a short while, and we'll get a much richer appreciation of what they're actually, what's actually going on. But now things are going to turn nasty. So if you're a snowflake, prepare to melt. (laughs) And that's not a dig at the young adults. Hey, I'm uh, really impressed with some of the things that the young adults are doing. They're they're devoted to prayer, they're devoted to the Word of God, and they're devoted to reaching out. (laughs) We should be so grateful. I often go down to Burnley to see my mum, and I go to church there with her. And the church is fine. really appreciate the church being there and being able to take communion with my mum. But when I go there, I'm about the third or fourth youngest person in the church. <laughs> That's not true today. <laughs> but I about know, 153rd or 203rd whatever. And when we we're at the Gardine, about 253rd or 303rd. And I've been to other churches, with good evangelical churches, But you look at the congregation, and there's very few under 40. And I get worried. But here, both with the young adults and with tribe, we should, as a church, should be immensely grateful that we have so many young people who are serious about Jesus. And we also need to appreciate that the world they're growing up in is a far more complicated and difficult world than the world we grew up in. But the one who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. So it doesn't matter what the world throws at at us or at them. In Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we can overcome. But I better stick to the sermon I'm actually meant to be preaching. So, if if there are any snowflakes in here, this is melting time. Let's go to 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoa. What's this? No condemnation. Apparently, people are condemned. Again, uh, this is your third bonus point. Sometimes people will say, or give, again, non-Christians on the whole, why should someone go to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus? That's a wrong picture of what happens. Look what it says there. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. People will go to hell because of sin. Let me put, give you a, a diff, a, a, an analogy which perhaps expresses things better. Suppose we all had a fatal, it was told we all had a fatal disease. And then someone comes in with a big jar of blue pills and says, if you take one of these pills, you'll get cured. And many of us did take a blue pill, and we got cured. But some people say, oh, why should I have to take a blue pill? I don't want to take a blue pill. And then, sometime later, they're at death's door. And saying, so it's not fair that I'm dying just because I didn't take a blue pill. It's nonsense. They're dying because they had this disease and refused to take the medicine which would cure them. It's the same with sin. Every single one of us in the whole world is hellbound. But there is a cure that every single person can take. But we need to believe in Jesus. And well, there it says, well, if you don't people are condemned already. And let's go to 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see how much more serious things have got. It's not just a matter of, oh, Jesus loves us and everything's fine. The light has come into the world, but the world preferred darkness. Why? Because they feared That their deeds would be exposed for what they are. You see, when we come into the light of Jesus, it shows us up for exactly who and what we are. And we can be afraid of that. See, why didn't people come into the light? They're going to get healed, they're going to get set free, they're going to be forgiven. Pride and fear. Now, it happens. With unbelievers, with people who refuse to believe. Now, most of us here do believe, so we've got over the first hurdle. But there are times in our life when the same thing happens. There are times in our life, I mean, it's all we've said, we, have we sinned against God? We will say, yes. Have we been forgiven? Yes. There are times, and in general, we all believe that. There are times in our lives when God puts His finger on something in our lives. And it's not more, it's not general anymore, it's specific. And he puts his finger and goes, you're not carrying on like that anymore. It's time to change. And we can react in the same way. We find it very difficult to admit to God, yes, we're wrong. And it's pride and fear. See, the root of rebellion back in the Garden of Eden... It's twofold. One saying we can manage and we can live without God. And the second part is we will decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. We don't need you, God, to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Those two aspects are the root of, our, of man's rebellion against God. And you can see it in the world all too easily. And there's a fear. That if we are shown up for what we are, that we will be condemned. You know, if uh, if the tax man comes and says, there's some money here you've not been declaring, what's going to happen? You're going to get punished. There's going to be extra tax to pay and there's going to be penalties because you didn't declare the income which you ought to have declared. Or suppose the police find, with justifiable reasons, find we come and prove that you've done something wrong. What's going to happen? You're going to be condemned. You're going to be punished. There's going to be a price to pay. So we have this attitude of feeling deep within us or knowledge deep within us that if we're shown to have done something wrong, we will, we're going to be punished for it. And therefore, we're very reluctant to go into situations where the truth about ourselves will be exposed And if we come to God, if we come to His Word, if we come to Jesus, it exposes things in our life. Come on, who knows what it's like to read the Word of God and to think, I wish I hadn't read that? Come on. And we have this fear. But what did it say in in the nice verses? That so Jesus didn't wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world, and so often that the common way of taking that is, oh, Jesus didn't come to tell us off. That is nonsense. Jesus did not come into the world to affirm us. He came to save us. So he came into the world. He comes into our life. He speaks to us. He reveals things to us. And sometimes that's revealing what's wrong with us. But he doesn't do that and say, right, this is wrong about you, you're doing this wrong, therefore, this is a punishment you've got to take. No. He comes into the world, into our lives, and at times he shows things up and says, this is wrong with you, this needs to change. Right, come to me, I will forgive you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll work together, and I will start to heal you of this. I will start to change you. I haven't come to condemn you, but He has come to show us what's wrong. He has come to show us the changes that need to take place in our lives. But He comes and He forgives us. And Just mind yourself what it says there. It says He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Well, that implies we need to be saved from something. And the thing we most need to be saved from is ourselves. Your biggest problem is you. My biggest problem is me. And then in 3.16 it says, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. The implication of that is that without Jesus, we, you're, we're perishing. When the words of that Kasabian song, we're all wasting away. Someone knows the song. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. That would not go down well. Jeez this is this is the heart of God. See what it says in three twenty-one. You know, you if you read nineteen to twenty, you might think this is a complete disaster. Then, right, because no, the light has come, but no one's going into the light. No, it's not saying no one goes into the light. This is saying what happens in a lot of cases. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So people who think, I'm doing okay, I don't need God to tell me how to live. The way I live my life is fine. I know it's against God's word, but that doesn't matter. It's fine. That is living a lie. And at some point the lie catches up with us. But when we, do, when we say, right, God, you are right, when we, when we confess our sins and we come into his light, we are forgiven, we're set free, we're welcomed, and a work of transformation begins in our life. But we need to understand the nature of the gospel. In one sense, at the, at the same time, the gospel is both. It's the most offensive message there is. There's a lot of talk about these days about not offending people. The gospel is by its very nature utterly offensive. What it says to me is that I deserve to be nailed to that cross. And it says the same about every single one of us in this room. And it says the same about every single other person in this city. The gospel says you deserve to be nailed to that cross. It's utterly offensive. There's nothing you can do on your own merits to avoid it. But, it's also the, the message of greatest love that there is. It says, yes, you deserve to be nailed to that cross. But Jesus went there in our place. But we need to understand that it's these two sides of the gospel. There's... We've been talking about anniversaries earlier, and I've been banging about my anniversary all year, that this year I'll have been born again for 40 years. I'll, at 22nd of November, I'll stop talking about it. <laughs> but there's a myth which throughout all that time I've noticed that so much of the church has, and the myth is this: if we're nice enough, everyone will come to believe. We do it again and again and again. That there's a, an implicit message in the way we try to organize ourselves and the things we try to do. They think if only we're nice enough and kind enough then everyone will come to believe. That is utter nonsense. The only way anyone can come to believe is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Now, Does that mean, oh, well, we don't need to bother being kind to people. No, that's not what it means. But if if we think, because we take bold steps, or because we demonstrate kindness, immense kindness to people, or because we explain things with enormous clarity, perfect clarity, that people will therefore come to believe we are utterly deluded. In Psalm 127, it says this, unless the, build, the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. People getting saved is enormously difficult. Jesus said, he was talking bit particularly about a rich man, he said it's harder, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And disciples said to him, Who then can be saved? What did Jesus say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. We need to know that to be effective, we work and we, in, we walk in step with the Holy Spirit, we walk in step with God. Because he's the only one who can change things. Now then we will still take the bold steps. We will still show amazing kindness to people. We will still try and present the gospel with incredible clarity. But the success will come because of him and not because of us. And we need to get that. And we also need to understand. Paul said, I think it's in 2 Corinthians. He said, to some we are the stench of death. To others, we are the fragrance of life. We need to appreciate that there are these two things which will happen, which will go on simultaneously because of the deep nature of the problem of sin in mankind. Some will utterly reject, maybe even violently, But others will get saved. People who should never get, by any human stretch of the imagination, should ever get saved. But because it's the power of God, because it's the love of God which saves people, they will get saved. And that's that's why Paul carried on with doing what he did. He got got beaten up and thrown into prison and shipwrecked and all sorts of things, accused of all sorts of stuff. But he kept going because he knew that sometimes you're going to get that reaction and other times you're going to get the reaction of life. Let's just have a look at, we're doing okay, let's just have a look at a concrete example from Luke's gospel. It's about Zacchaeus. He was a wee guy. Jesus was coming to his town, and he was just a wee guy, so he went up a tree so he could see Jesus clearly. And then Jesus came to him and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. Now, you might think that's a bit rude. That was an enormous act of love. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, no one likes tax collectors at the best of times. Apologies to any tax collectors in the congregation this morning. It is possible for tax collectors to get saved if you are a tax collector. (laughs) The power of God. But he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a tax collector for the occupying power, for the Roman authorities. And more than that, the tax collectors just didn't take taxes for the Roman authorities. They said, well, well, that's for Caesar. And now, a wee bit for me, please, a little bit extra for me. And he put it in his back pocket. They were thieves, essentially. So everybody hated them. If they were walking down the street. There was a tax collector on that side. You'd walk down that side. But Jesus goes to this man. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. No one else would ever have done that for him. You see, I said earlier that the gospel is incredibly offensive. That means we should be careful not to add any unnecessary offense. And why also we do need to show amazing acts of kindness. So Jesus went and said, I'm coming to your house today. So he to his house, and then the end of the story is in verses 9 and 10. Just before that, Zacchaeus has said, I repent of all I've done wrong. If I've st- anyone I've stolen money from, I'm going to give them four times back. I'm never going to steal again. I'm going to repay people four times, people I've diddled money out of. What did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Remember elsewhere, Jesus said, It's not the sick who need a doctor. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus came didn't come to affirm us, he came to save us because we need saving. And let's just finish with a few verses from Isaiah. This is one of my favorite bits in Isaiah, particularly 3015. Many years ago, almost 40, not quite, like 38 years ago, I was going through a hard time at university, and a friend came and gave this, oh, this verse here to me, and it's kind of stuck with me ever since. It says, this is what the Sovereign law, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. And then there's a sting in the tail, but you would have none of it. And let's read the next verse. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five, you will all flee away. To your left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. I talked earlier about times when God puts his finger on something. And what's our natural reaction? To try and justify ourselves. Well, so often we'll start by, well, I'm not actually disobeying the word of God. I'm actually, wrong, I'm doing is really the word of God. And when that doesn't work, we then start, I know God's word says you shouldn't do this, but actually it's a good thing to do because of this. And then a final phase can even be God's wrong. I don't care about what God says. I'm just going to do things my way. Have you, we've, we've put times in our lives when we've gone through self-justification. Come on, who's done it? Well, my, my problem. I may well be the worst sinner in this room. Have you noticed how hard work it is? You know, when we're going through the self-justification cycle. God puts his finger on something and says, and then we start our brains going to overdrive, and we're arguing that. It's blooming hard work, isn't it? But let's read for 18, because it looks a bit depressing at that stage. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore He will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on Him. The times when you're stuck in this self-justification cycle, and it's so difficult, it's so stressful you're doing it, because you're actually wrong. But the moment, the moment we lay down our weapons... And surrender to God. Isn't it amazing? I mean, when I first got saved, I would spent years arguing as an atheist. The moment I bowed down before Jesus, He welcomed me with open arms, because He didn't come to the world to condemn me, He came to save me. And the times of my life since that, when I've had this about God putting His finger on something, And I have tried to argue my way out of it. That I don't actually need to change. I don't actually need to do things differently. When I finally give up. The peace. The release. That comes at that moment. Because Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world. You see this is the gospel. It's not. Telling the world, or telling ourselves that we're doing okay, that we're okay with it's the complete opposite of that. We're saying, Yes, you guys, you're in a complete, utter, complete mess. But I've come to save you, I've come to rescue you. That is the message of the gospel. Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you that you sent your Son to die for us. That knowing exactly who we are, what we are, what we do, what we've done. That while you would have been perfectly in your rights just to write us off, you didn't do that, God. You came to live amongst us and you, Jesus, died on the cross, paying the price that we should have paid, taking the penalty that we should have suffered, that you've come, you've come to sort us out, and you want this world to be sorted out. Lord, I pray you'll make us incredibly wise, incredibly zealous for your gospel, and for seeing people saved in this city. Lord, we ask you to lead us as a church. We thank, we know, thank you, God, that we do know what your purposes are. We you to see as many people as possible saved. We thank you for the place you give us in that work. We ask you, God, that we will fulfill that role faithfully. We pray we will walk in step with you, with your Holy Spirit. And that we will see your power come down on this city and bring many, many people out of darkness into your light. In Jesus' name, amen.